0: Hello. Hi, welcome to Loitering. It's a podcast about the art you can't get over. I'm Mandy. I'm Justine. And today we are talking about a writer, director, producer of many films that we are all very familiar with, John Hughes. John Hughes. Yes. We love him. John Hughes was born in 1950 in Lansing, Michigan. He died in 2009 in New York City. And his family moved to Northbrook, Illinois when he was in seventh grade, around the age of like 12 or 13. And you can tell that by looking at the movies that he directed, produced, writ- wrote, because Chicago was a prominent... Chicagoland. Go- Chicagoland, like it's, it's mostly
1: yes. like a suburbs thing, I feel yeah, like, like a like North Shore.
0: North, Northwest suburbs, mm-hmm. downtown, I would say, features in Ferris Bueller. But mm-hmm. yeah, so he is a director who is known for a lot of different things and I think one of them is his kind of appeal to Chicago specifically but also I think more broadly he spoke to a generation of teenagers about like what being a teenager felt like and especially a suburban teenager he was kind of the first guy to kind of take teenagers seriously in film Mm -hmm, absolutely Uh, yeah Molly Ringwald notes that YA was not really a thing before Mm -hmm. recently. Their teenage movies were cast by 20-somethings and they were really (laughs) exploitative and like very sexualized, uh, not actually for or about teenagers. And so he kind of put teenagers on the map culturally-
1: in the United States. He did, yeah. And it is that generation, but it's also generations after. Yeah. Um, I think it's those central teenage feelings and questions like, I want to get laid. I want a car. I (laughs) I got uninvited to the prom. My parents don't understand me. Yeah. It's all very real and poignant and just deep... When you're a teenager, now it sounds tropey, but then it's very real.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and I mean, I rewatched Ferris Bueller's Day Off today, and it is still a very real, like, deep, emotional movie. And we can get into that later. But, yeah, so he started writing humor essays and stories for the magazine National Lampoon in 1970, and then his directorial debut was in 1984, the movie Sixteen Candles. Yes. Which is one of my super faves. Yeah. Even though it's hella problematic. That is a, tr- a trope that I think characterizes all of his movies. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. But when I turned 16, I got for my birthday,
1: a TV that had a dual VHS and mm. DVD player, Ooh. which was the shit. Wonderful. And also uh, the three DVD pack of 16 Candles, Pretty and Pink and The Breakfast
0: Club. What a perfect combination of movies. <laughs> perfect,
1: Which I watched for the rest of my life. <laughs> yeah.
0: I know, I know someone who has a DVD collection of. Bring It On, Mean Girls, 13 Going On 30, and Clueless. That's wonderful. This is like the next generation of those teen (laughs) movies. It sure is. Girl-centric teen movies. Yeah. I think it's also worth noting that he worked on 16 Candles in 1984 Weird Science and The Breakfast Club in 1985, and Pretty in Pink and Ferris Bueller's Day Off in 1986. Yeah, it was so, a jam-packed mid-80s. Yeah, like the five classic teen movies of the 1980s from the same guy in two years Yeah, is phenomenal. Intense. Like, <laughs> I I don't think I realized that they were so close in time to each other. And now I'm like, oh, no wonder he was a huge deal because he was. Absolutely, he defined the '80s in yeah. a lot of ways. Yeah, <laughs> I think when you think of the '80s, and you're you're doing like rapid association, one of the first things that a lot of people are going to say is John Hughes. Hell yeah! It's like, <laughs> yeah, he also worked on a lot of other stuff though, which I found out today. He wrote the screenplay for Flubber in 1997. Damn, um, I didn't have that one written down. Yeah, I just saw that. Um, He also produced Home Alone, uh, Uncle Buck in 1989, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, National Lampoon's Vacation, and the Beethoven franchise. Yeah, the
1: Beethoven one (laughs) surprised me. Yeah, I had
0: no idea. (laughs) Also, Dennis the Menace, I think Uh you mentioned. Yeah, a lot of of great stuff. A lot of family
1: classics. Yeah. It seems like there were his teenage-focused years, and then his like adult-slash-more-family film years. Yeah. Because, like, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles isn't, you know, teen-focused. And Uncle Buck really isn't either. Mm-hmm.
0: Or family-friendly. O-
1: or She's Having a Baby. That was a 1988 one with Kevin oh, yeah. Bacon. I don't know so anything about like, that one. I think it kind of, like, yeah. cuts off at 1986 to more, like, adults. And then mm-hmm. he kind of goes into Dennis the Menace, Beethoven.
0: Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of interesting. He branches off. It reminds me of like when Chris Rock started doing family films. Yeah, 100%. (laughs) Yeah, like he's he's in Milana now and great in it, I should say. Yeah, so let's talk a little about about his movies, the classics. So you are very familiar with Sixteen Candles and Pretty in Pink. Mm -hmm. I would say I'm very familiar with Ferris Bueller and The Breakfast Club. So why don't we start chronologically and you talk about, you give me a little insight into the Molly Ringwald universe.
1: Great. Yeah. So to talk about these for me is to also talk about my personal life a tad. Sure. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> but 16 Candles specifically with Molly Ringwald. So this is about um, a sophomore girl in high school. She wakes up on her 16th birthday. Um, her sister is also getting married this same weekend Mm -hmm. so everyone in her family forgets her birthday oh no and she's low-key devastated yeah well more than low-key but she it's low-key because she doesn't say anything to her family about it because she's upset
0: i think it's an interesting premise for a movie that molly ringwald is your least favorite child yeah because she is like america's sweetheart and has been forever (laughs) But anyway. it is
1: kind of funny because she's like the middle one that folks forget about. The youngest one, the boy, I think is Mike. Um, oh,
0: right. Yeah. yeah. It's been so long since I saw this movie.
1: And then her older sister is just this really funny, um, like long blonde hair, mm. very dramatic. She's mm-hmm. marrying who they call the oily bohunk.
0: <laughs> this yeah. terrible
1: dude that everyone in the family can't stand. Yeah. <laughs> but... It's it's really heartwarming I think to see the family and you especially the mom and dad mm-hmm. and their relationship with the kids. But yeah, there's just so much going on in the family which I really related to because yeah. I was a middle child. And sometimes when there's so many competing narratives going on in one house, it's easy for something like that to happen. Yeah. And she is in love with this boy in her school, Jake Ryan, mm-hmm. who's a senior, and she's a sophomore. Mm-hmm. And, you know, miracle of miracles, Jake Ryan is, like, somehow kind of into her. Oh, <laughs> So, like... <laughs> eventually, not yes. at the beginning. But I think that that's something that John Hughes films do really well, is they always root for the underdog or have mm-hmm. this, like, kind of wish fulfillment sort of narrative yeah. to them. But yeah, in no world would Jake Ryan be paying attention to Molly Ringwald.
0: Yeah, isn't he kind of a jerk? He's
1: kind of a jerk, but he's shown in a light that he's less of a jerk than all of the other jerks. So you think he's nice. I see. So especially through teen eyes, you would think he's fucking amazing. Yes. But through, through an adult's eyes, you're like, yeah, Jake Ryan's kind of a jerk. Yeah. The super problematic scene: Jake Ryan has a girlfriend, Caroline. Who he's just disillusioned with, he's mm. done with. She bores him because she's beautiful and rich and vapid and just likes to party. Sure. And he's interested in more than just a party.
0: Oh okay. And like a typical teenage boy, he's not brave enough to actually break up with her. Yeah. Okay. But
1: that's like an iconic scene between him and his uh, like beefcake buddy in the gym. Uh-huh. They're they're working out and everything. And he's like, "Do you know that girl Samantha Baker?" He's like, "She's a sophomore, right?" <laughs> and he's like, "Way too young to party." Serious. <laughs> Jake Ryan's like, "Maybe I'm
0: interested in more than a party." <laughs> he's got depth to him.
1: Oh, it's so good. It's so bad. But, yeah, that's really the premise of the movie. The family's preparing for the sister's wedding, and Molly Ringwald is um, perpetually just humiliated and sad and loving Jake Ryan. Mm -hmm. And somehow, in the end, it all works out with this iconic, beautiful scene where she's in this lavender bridesmaid's dress walking out of the church, and there's Jake Ryan sitting there in his sweater vest and his Mm -hmm. red sports car. And, oh, It's just, it's what dreams are made of.
0: (laughs) Is this also, is this, so I unfortunately kind of conflate the two movies in my head. Is this also the one with the cake and they kiss over the cake? Uh huh. Okay. And he
1: says, Happy birthday, Samantha.
0: Ugh, beautiful. It's amazing. Did you know that um, Dan Levy and Noah Reed, as David and Patrick in Schitt's Creek, recreated a lot of iconic like movie romance scenes for the promotion of season six i think Wow. and one of them was 16 candles amazing yeah it's her flower crown yeah i think david's wearing like something very elaborate and like noah or yeah patrick is there that's wonderful it's really i'm really excited to see that i am too i don't know when it's going to be on netflix but i'm waiting me too
1: um, but the more problematic scene, so that does kind of tie into Jake Ryan not being the best dude. Yes. So, Caroline, who he's super annoyed with and done with, but somehow doesn't ever tell her when she's sober and is just mean to her when she gets drunk. That's cool. Yeah. They're at a party and she gets really, really drunk with her friends and he's not paying attention to her. He has his door shut and he's in the room trying to call Molly Ringwald's character. But super funny, her grandparents are staying in her room and answer the phone. <laughs> So just humiliation after humiliation. Yeah, it's super cute. (laughs) Um, But then the nerd who really likes Samantha Molly Ringwald's character. uh, The nerd is played by Anthony Michael Hall, Mm -hmm. who's fantastic. Yes. And he has um, asked Samantha if he can borrow her panties to prove that he's made it with a girl. Mm -hmm. So he's, like, charging a dollar for all of the freshman boys to, like, see this pair of underwear in the bathroom, and there's all that going on. But then he buddies up to Jake somehow at the end, Mm -hmm. because they're the only two left at this party at Jake's house, which his parents' house is trash. Of course. Anthony Michael Hall is stuck in a glass table, (laughs) screaming. (laughs) Um, and lets him out, and you know Anthony Michael Hall is talking about how I know that girl, I know her, blah blah blah. She's so sweet. I actually have her underwear. So Jake Ryan essentially trades his passed out, you know, senior girlfriend Caroline uh-huh. for Samantha Baker's underwear, and lets uh-huh. Anthony Michael Hall drive his dad's BMW with this drunk girl in it to do do what he Whatever. will. Yeah. So.
0: That's, that's not great. That sucks. Yeah. And this is a recurring theme in a few of his movies, John Hughes movies. Uh, I know there's a scene in The Breakfast Club. Um, I think the whole premise of Weird Science is kind of weird, where, part, like, specifically women's underwear, but also just, like, yeah, we casual were just talking sexual and, harassment. But the women's underwear thing
1: comes yeah, up a lot. Specifically yeah, women's that's underwear. Yeah, because Sixteen Candles. Weird science and the breakfast club, there's the Molly Ringwald underwear yeah. like scene, which is so, interesting.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess that might have been a particular fascination of his that unfortunately made it onto screen a lot and was just like cool because of the 80s, I guess. <laughs> I mean,
1: yeah, and I don't want to say, oh, because it was that time, but I yeah. think we do kind of have to talk about. Um, the comedy that surrounded that time too and not just like pull his stuff out because we were talking about the revenge of the nerds in 82 where a guy like puts on a halloween mask that this girl's boyfriend was supposed to be wearing and she thinks it's her boyfriend and has sex with them like that's supposed to be super funny and it's like "Mm, no that's that's right yeah Um, so that was kind of like the canon of comedy yeah. at the time,
0: and especially, I think a lot of other teen movies were "quote unquote" teen movies, but they had adults in them, and they were about like very overtly s- sexual things. Like if we think about Porky's, yeah, or Animal House. Like in contrast exactly. to that, these are like pretty chaste movies, and I think Ferris Bueller is a pretty chaste movie. I would say like ninety-eight percent of it, but. It, yeah, it was very much in the culture, I think, at the time. And so I, I don't think it really got criticized as much as it yeah. definitely would now. But
1: there's an interesting thing going on in Sixteen Candles specifically. In reading, uh, we looked at some criticism or a, a op-ed that Molly Ringwald had written mm-hmm. for The New Yorker recently about looking back on her work. Yeah. Um, but there's something interesting in that scene specifically where it's the high school girlfriend with the Anthony Michael Hall character... And there's no indication all night that he's drunk at all. Yeah. But then the next morning they wake up in this church parking lot Mm -hmm. and she's like, I don't remember anything. And he's like, I don't know. I don't remember either. So it's almost like someone said, oh, this is super problematic. Just make it so he says he doesn't remember either. Yeah. Like there was a
0: tack on or something at the end. Yeah. Yeah. Just a little cleaning up of Mm -hmm. the script, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that um, piece that Molly Ringwald wrote is called What About the Breakfast Club? Revisiting the Movies of My Youth in the Age of Me Too by Molly Ringwald. Um, It was published in The New Yorker in 2018. And it's a really good article. Um, I think Molly Ringwald rules and is a really good writer. She's, She's kind of moved into writing more in her adulthood. Yeah, she asked some very good big questions about how we're supposed to look at art that maybe we have some problems with but we also love and founded a whole genre of work on like i yeah. was thinking about the party scene in 16 candles and i was like oh sex education had a a big party scene that was definitely referencing exactly that. exactly i already mentioned that *Shit's creek referenced 16 candles like the references are everywhere They're endless there's also that episode of Sex Education with all the girls in the library that is a, a Breakfast Club reference. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's everywhere, and it. those are just two shows, but it, it's really the foundation of the genre. Absolutely. And so it's, um, it's interesting to look back on and, and think, oh, this is a thing that I love, but also it has this kind of uncomfortable part of it it does yeah and we talked about like the long duck dong character and how terribly racist that is yes yeah yeah and that's referenced in um to all the boys i've loved before
1: Mm -hmm. there was also like an npr podcast i think where that actor um talked about how he had to come to grips with being this catalyst for all asian american men and like growing up in high school being called long duck dong in high school yeah
0: that sucks That super sucks.
1: But yeah, I think that this is a good time to talk about the article a little bit in the middle of our Molly Ringwald little genre. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So she talks about in this article, um, her 10-year-old daughter wanted to watch The Breakfast Club. And she was like, you're way too young to watch The Breakfast Club. Which was funny because I think we both agreed with that sentiment, but also said like, we watched The Breakfast Club. Yeah, I 100% watched it when I was 10 or younger. Yeah. I think I saw it in seventh grade, so I would have been like... 12 or 13.
1: Which doesn't make sense because my mom was very diligent about what we watched. Yeah, but my older sister and brother, mm, my older sister was out of the house at this point, and she sure. definitely had Breakfast Club on VHS. So it wasn't even the edited for TV version oh, that I saw. It okay. was the uncut, all fucks flying okay. version.
0: <laughs> so I definitely saw the edited for TV version, and I remember watching it once in my room and thinking, like, oh, my mom, like, I'm not supposed to be watching this. Yeah. And then my mom came in and was like, oh, The Breakfast Club, and was, like, really excited about it. And I was like, wait, really? Like, <laughs> I'm not supposed to be doing this. What are you doing? But, yeah, so she watched, Molly Ringwald watched um, The Breakfast Club with her, her 10-year-old daughter, and... There's a scene in The Breakfast Club where Judd Nelson's character, Bender, I think his name is. Yeah, John Bender. John Bender is um, hiding under the desk of, from the principal mm-hmm. and is kind of peeking at her underwear. And it's assumed that he touches her inappropriately just casually sexually harasses her or maybe gets too close or something yeah
1: in the scene he like sees and then his head starts going closer and then she like snaps her knees on his head or something and he yeah
0: yeah really unfortunate Mm -hmm. casual sexual harassment humor but yeah she so molly ringwald talks about that scene with watching it with her daughter and how her daughter just kind of skipped over it and didn't register anything but did kind of register shock at the thought of her mom taking off her underwear and giving it to a guy which I thought was like (laughs) cute but also a little uncomfortable I guess Mm -hmm. and then she goes on to write about how she kept thinking about that scene and the casual sexual harassment in it and she reached out to the actress who played Caroline in Sixteen Candles um, Havelin Morris and asked about like you know Mm -hmm what do you think of the scene now? And they had a really interesting conversation about consent and date rape. And yeah, I don't know. It's a really good. Yeah. Article. The thing that I thought was so
1: interesting about that is the character, uh, Caroline Haviland. Is that her name? Mm-hmm. Almost talks about it as though it were her that experienced it. Yeah. She talks about the character being like way too drunk, but it's almost an alignment in her head that, yeah. that it, I've heard girls who similar things have happened to say like, Oh, I shouldn't have been so drunk. Mm-hmm. It's like, you have to rationalize it and make sense in your head. Mm-hmm. And even though she was a character playing this role in a movie and it didn't actually happen to her, it was almost like she still took that same line yeah, in order to did. rationalize it. Yeah, Or yeah, and make, assume, make peace in your head.
0: Yeah. I assume they weren't actually drunk because they were acting. And they were all underage. Also, Molly Ringwald was 15 when she filmed Sixteen Candles, Mm -hmm. which is just bizarre. Yeah, Molly Ringwald has this really good paragraph toward the end where she's asking these big questions that I think kind of came out of the Me Too era and are still being asked as we, as a country, kind of interrogate our own history of racial bias and racial bias in film and, and TV. Uh, she writes how are we meant to feel about art that we both love and oppose what if we are in the unusual position of having helped create it erasing history is a dangerous road when it comes to art change is essential but so too is remembering the past and all of its transgressions and barbarism so that we may properly gauge how far we have come and also how far we still need to go which i think is just a really good summary of
1: that is that's a very good eloquent way of bridging that
0: gap yeah, so if you're interested in reading this, we recommend it. Absolutely.
1: Yeah, and we've kind of already segued into The Breakfast Club in a lot of ways. Yes. So um, we could jump there. Uh, note on Sixteen Candles, my Jake Ryan
0: never loved me back. So. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, The Breakfast Club is, I don't know, maybe like with Sixteen Candles and Pretty of Pink, like the classic teen movie absolutely it uh, yeah yeah if you don't somehow, I'd say more so than 16 yeah. candles and
1: breakfast Club, or and uh, pretty pink actually yeah
0: I think it's probably like the John Hughes movie
1: it is yeah because it defines every click Mm-hmm. And then I think that every teen movie since has kind of followed that template in a way. Yeah. Even when you think of like Mean Girls in the early 2000s, where For they're sure. like, this is where the cool kids sit.
0: This is where this group sits. The and sexually active Bangies. Yeah. <laughs> which I took very personally. Yeah. So if you don't know what the premise is, I don't know why I shamed you into that, but the premise of The Breakfast Club is that five teenagers have. Detention on a Saturday, and they have to spend their whole day together. And there's Molly Ringwald playing the like pretty popular girl, Judd Nelson mm-hmm. um, playing John Bender, the wrong side of the tracks kid, yeah, like the burnout type, yeah, Anthony Michael Hall playing the nerd who somehow got detention um, for trying
1: to kill himself with a flare gun.
0: Oh, I forgot that detail. Yeah,
1: which is super weird how his mom, like, knowing why he got detention, drops him off in the morning and is like, make sure you use this time productively and get your homework done. Like, can you imagine? Oh, my
0: God. Yeah. There's There's also
1: dark undertones. Yeah. And overtone.
0: Yes, for sure. (laughs) It's just dark. It's dark. And I think that's a key element of John Hughes that... But in we a like bright,
1: very well-resourced library. Yeah.
0: <laughs> that was filmed in the high school in Des Plaines. Oh wow. Which I don't really know how to pronounce, but it's a suburb of Chicago mm-hmm. that I know people from. And then the there's five of them, and um, Emilio Estevez mm-hmm. plays Andy, yep, who's a jock. And then Ali Sheedy plays. Why my I uh, Should have looked this up before. I just thought I had this, but in she's my kind of
1: like the female counterpart to the John Bender character. Yes. kind of like the weird. Um, no one understands her. She tries to shock everyone.
0: Yes. Um, Allison. Allison. Yes. Yes. Paul Gleason pay, plays the principal, I believe. Yes. Yes. Just really all star cast. Also, I just saw what uh, John Jud Nelson looks like these days. Oh, that's disappointing. It's a it's a little disappointing. <laughs> he looks like a normal, non burnout kind of dude. Yeah, and they all get detention and just kind of spend the day together. And it's kind of one of those movies where nothing happens, but big emotional shifts. take place. Which is my
1: favorite kind of day.
0: Oh my god, yes. (laughs) Where
1: nothing happens but you have deep conversations that the psychological scalpel comes out.
0: Ferris Bueller is also very much one of these movies (laughs) and I love that movie so much. Yes, The Breakfast Club. I don't know, it's such a like sad, like really deeply sad movie. All these kids talking about like, like there's a scene where first of all every scene is just them talking to each other
1: mm-hmm. <clears throat> even though they're not allowed
0: to talk even though they're not allowed to talk and then the principal comes come in sometimes and yell at them mm-hmm. and that's a whole movie and then their parents come at the end of the day and pick them up and that's that's it but the the bigger like kind of idea behind it is we're going to get to know each other this day and we're going to have fun and we're going to open up to each other but then on Monday. We're just going to go back to pretending that we don't exist.
1: Yeah. And this is an interesting question that I was thinking about asking you. Yeah. What do you think happened on Monday in that fictional universe?
0: I've thought about this a lot since I was 12 and I think I romanticize it a lot and I'm like, no, you know, like maybe Andy will be nice to Allison and... Uh, I don't know, like, I I liked, I think I went through this whole process in high school where I was trying to rationalize who would talk to whom, Mm -hmm. and who would not be, like, I think Andy is the kind of person, the jock, who would, he's got enough social status that he can afford to talk to someone.
1: Yeah, you'd think so. Yeah. But people are also so scared of, like, falling out of line in their cliques. Yeah. It's really interesting.
0: Yeah, I don't think Molly Ringwald would. Mm-mm. I think maybe Allison or mm, what is Anthony Michael Hall's character's name? Um, Brian. Yes. Brian might like try to and then get rebuked. Yeah, maybe. You know, Molly might with
1: John Bender though, just to like piss off her parents. That's true. Cuz he says, "Wouldn't I be outstanding in that capacity?" Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's such a good movie. It really is. Yeah, but some of the best scenes,
1: one of the most emotional ones, I think, is when they're all sitting in the circle Mm -hmm. upstairs, like, talking about why they're all there.
0: Yeah, and they have just smoked weed and danced throughout the library, which is a very fun little montage. Also,
1: like, what the hell, Emilio Estevez on weed. I swear he was given something else that's not what (laughs) happens with weed. Yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Or, like, someone... I don't know. John Hughes maybe was just like, let's write all this weird shit and pretend it's like an umbrella drug that does yeah. everything. Yeah.
1: <laughs> There's also a great quote the principal, he's like, what if your house, what if your family, what if your dope was on fire? <laughs> he's like, impossible, sir. It's in Johnson's underwear. <laughs> because they've just stolen yeah, it out of the locker. <laughs> yeah.
0: Uh, yeah, that's another thing that happens in uh, both The Breakfast Club and Ferris Bueller where teenagers will just be honest with adults and then the adults don't know to take them seriously. Yeah. Well there's
1: also like this really interesting problem with authority. Yes. I uh, think
0: very much. In
1: all of in the all movies. Of them. Yeah.
0: The principal in Ferris Bueller's day off breaks into Ferris's house. To try to catch him skipping from school. Yeah,
1: Which, this cracks me up, there's a New Girl episode where she's watching that with her boyfriend, and she's like, they should call Ferris Bueller's day off the day Rooney tried to do his job. Because <laughs> she'd, like, just become yeah. a vice principal.
0: <laughs> yeah. But, super cute. Very cute. Um, and then Ferris Bueller is set, again, in the Chicago suburbs, and... F- also in Chicago and it, the premise of Ferris Bueller is also very simple. I think all of his films have a very simple premise mm-hmm. but then this like really deep emotional weight. The premise is just there's this teenager who's kind of a bad dude, like pretty toxic friend, not a good character. It's kind of an asshole. A huge <laughs> asshole. And Everyone loves him. He gets away with everything. He is going to skip school for the ninth time in one semester,
1: mm. which
0: is in a an insane amount of yeah. That really sick is. days. Mm-hmm. Having been a teacher, I'm like, what <laughs> the hell? Um, but yeah, he fakes being sick. His parents are very gullible, and they're super in love with him and. The birth order is a little confusing because Jennifer Grey is in the movie playing his sister. I think she's older, isn't she? I, is she- I think she's supposed to be, but he's also a senior. So I she must be younger. Mm. But she acts like an older sister. Yeah. And the way they baby him makes me think that he's a younger brother. Interesting, yeah. It's one of those details that's not really nailed down and it's kind of fluid based on the situation. But mm-hmm. she goes to their high school, so yeah. they might be twins. I don't know. Oh, wow. But... A very charming Jennifer Grey is in the movie. Yes. Um, She's fantastic in it. And then, yeah, he and his uh, best friend Cameron, played by a young Alan Ruck, and his girlfriend Sloan, uh, skip school for the day and go to Chicago. And that's pretty much the movie. It's wonderful. Uh, It got kind of a lukewarm review in the New York Times in 1986. The New York Times noted that Ferris Bueller is a fantasy they said that he is a teenager with lots of self-confidence and without any problems. They did not think Matthew Broderick's performance was compelling enough. It's shit. I think is <laughs> a travesty of a of an under of an overstatement. Yeah, he's fantastic in the movie, and he's also hot. Mm-hmm. Young Matthew Broderick is hot. Mm-hmm. Cannot stress that enough. Um, Don't disagree. Yeah, I think, so the the New York Times review also, I think, has a good encapsulation of what John Hughes was all about. They write, Hughes has the sensibility and vision of an, adolescence, of an adolescent with the technical know-how and expertise of an adult. The movies that result are uncanny recreations and celebrations of a teenage point of view, which is a really good, like, just vibe of what yeah, he's doing. I like that. Yeah, but... There's a lot of similarities between the Breakfast Club and Ferris Bueller's Day Off, suicide being among them. Like mm, Alan mm-hmm. Ruck's character has a very unhealthy, bad home life. His parents fight all the time. His dad pours all of his energy and love into these cars and these things and doesn't care about him or his mom. I think the movie is much more about Cameron than it yeah, is about Ferris Bueller. I think so too. Um, yeah. I love Cameron's character in this movie. But I do too. But there's a scene kind of toward the end where Cameron just like sinks himself to the bottom of the pool and stays there. And Ferris Bueller has to pull him out. And it's... When he gets out of the bottom of the pool, he's like, oh, I got you. But it's never really clear whether it was a joke or not. And I think something that is good that's happening in Ferris Bueller is that that is not being played for laughs. Mm-hmm. It is a... Serious moment and a serious thing and the weight of the movie is treated seriously and not as a joke. And Mm -hmm. I think if I remember right in The Breakfast Club, uh, Anthony Michael Hall's character, his suicide attempt is kind of offhand and... Kind of. Like, they're
1: talking about it very seriously in the circle. Uh-huh. And then, like, the funny part is that it was a flare gun. mm And, like, that was what he had access to. Oh. And so, like, they they kind of, like, laugh about it being a flare gun. Yeah. Um, but then it's interesting because I almost feel like he's doing something comically that we don't see until later. Maybe even mm. with, like, Judd Apatow stuff mm-hmm. where it's, like... Things get so tense that, like, the only thing you can do is, like, laugh about oh, something. Oh, sure. I don't yeah. know if that's, like, a precursor to that. But, like, I I, I take that point, though. That it, it does kind of fall off into a joke. But they are treating yeah. it seriously, like, up until that okay. point. The group is.
0: Yeah. Maybe my assessment was not... Or my remembering that was not accurate. Because I... I I forgot that until you mentioned it, mm-hmm. and then I I don't remember it being like a serious thing in the movie, but I must have forgotten.
1: Because they're talking about it, and he's like, "I brought a gun to school," and you know, and I remember yeah. her saying like, "Why why do you hate yourself?" Molly Ringwald asking that, and they're all like talking really seriously yeah. about it, but then somebody was like, "What kind of gun was it?" And he's like, a "Flare gun," and then they all laugh, yeah, <laughs> like, and then he starts laughing too. Yeah,
0: that's a really sweet mm-hmm. moment. It sounds like. If I remembered it better.
1: I just love that movie so much. There's so much good dialogue in it. Like one of the most wrenching scenes to me, weirdly, is with the janitor and the principal in the closet Mm. where they're like talking and the principal's talking about how the kids have changed. Kids aren't the same these days. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he's like, one of the things that keeps me up at night is that one day when I'm old and in a home these kids are going to be taking care of me. And the janitor's like, I wouldn't count on it. And it's just like, oh shit. Mm-hmm. Like, that's such good writing. Yeah. It's just really good dialogue.
0: Yeah, he does have a lot of really good dialogue in his movies. There's um, there's a moment in Ferris Bueller's Day Off that sticks with me where Cameron and... Sloan are talking to each other while Ferris Bueller's in the parade Mm -hmm. and they're talking about like what are they going to do because she is a junior and Cameron and Ferris are both seniors Mm -hmm. and kind of the the thing hanging over the whole movie that isn't really articulated until the end is that Cameron and Ferris are best friends, but they're going to go to different schools, and the friend group is going to break apart. Yeah. Also,
1: like, what a little dick Ferris Bueller's yeah. like. Yeah, Cameron has an expiration date or something yeah. to that effect.
0: Yeah, I don't. It's it's very weird because he clearly cares about his friends, but. I think really the only climax in the movie is him taking responsibility for the car because mm-hmm. that's kind of the brick that's waiting to fall Right. the whole movie is Cameron's father has this like classic Ferrari. There's only like 300 of them ever made. Um, he loves this thing. He spent 10 years, you know, revamping it. And then Ferris Bueller insists on taking it into the city. It gets driven around by the valet guys all day, which mm-hmm. I think is really funny They figure out that the miles are way too high because his dad has been keeping track of the mileage. They try to reverse the car, like lift it and run it in reverse for a long time to get the miles to go down, which is not how cars work. (laughs) But yeah, Cameron starts like acknowledging, like, this isn't working. The mileage thing isn't working, and I'm gonna get caught. And he starts like kicking the front of the car and he dents it and he's like, Okay, well, this is great because now I have to confront my dad. I can't hide this. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna talk to my dad, and that's kind of the, like Cameron's emotional growth is like, I'm gonna actually do something about my family. Yeah. But then the car slips off of the lift and goes through the back of the garage, mm-hmm. which is this beautiful like modernist home yeah. in Highland Park, <laughs> um, and totals the car. And then Ferris Bueller finally speaks up and is like. I'll take responsibility for it. And that's kind of the only, like, big thing that happens is Ferris Bueller, like, finally taking the fall for something. But then he doesn't even do it. Yeah. Like, Cameron is like, no, don't worry about it. I'll yeah. do it. And it's like, okay, so that's a little disappointing. It is. but And
1: it's kind of like he almost knows that he's not going to have to. Yeah. Like,
0: and he just has this
1: hard on for destruction and chaos the whole time. Yeah. And doesn't really care what happens and knows that he doesn't actually have to take yeah. ownership of anything he's a super
0: know. toxic dude yeah for sure but yeah there's a there's a piece of dialogue earlier during the parade that ferris bueller crashes and then like sings in and i just skipped over that whole part because i was like i don't this is not the part of the movie that i love but cameron and sloan are talking to each other and they're talking about what they're gonna do in the future, and they're talking about going to college and like, what are we gonna do with our futures? And like, I have no idea what I'm supposed to do. What do you like? I don't know that I like anything. And then they see such Ferris. Such a real feeling. I know. They see Ferris on the float, and Sloan is like, what do you think he's gonna do? And Cameron is like, he's gonna serve fries at, and he names a restaurant that's like a Chicago restaurant that I forgot. He's like, I'm gonna, he's gonna serve fries at Portillo's or something. And it's just such good, like, clean direct dialogue between Mm -hmm. these two teenage characters and but it still feels very real
1: yeah yeah and
0: not like sometimes you watch teenagers doing dialogue and you're like an adult wrote that right but with john hughes i feel like he really gives the the characters dialogue that fits with them but also gets at these emotional things
1: yeah i think so too yeah And I wish Cameron and Sloan would have
0: ended up together. Me too. They have great chemistry in that one scene. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Really good chemistry. Uh, I love that movie. I mentioned to you that I didn't really need to watch it today because I remembered everything from it, but it's still really nice to watch. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't seen that one in a really long time. It's lovely. Of the Chicago landmarks that they visit, they go to the Art Institute, uh, the Sears Tower, they go to a Cubs game. They go to a very fancy restaurant called Chez Louis. They drive along Lakeshore Drive. There's a lot of sky shots. But then there's also all these other little, like Chicago institutions, like the downtown parking garage. Yeah. um, Of a very particular architecture and shape and system. There's a a scene where they're driving down Michigan Avenue. The parade route happens, I think, on LaSalle. Mm -hmm. Just like on random streets that Chicagoans know very well, but it just looks like a city background to most people. Mm -hmm. Um, Even when they're driving through the Chicago suburbs, there's a very particular road that looks like every road in the Chicago suburbs. Yeah, (laughs) And it's so perfect. I love it so much. He wrote... He said in an interview once that a lot of Ferris is sort of my love letter to the city referring to Chicago. And uh, I guess he was getting a lot of flack for filming a lot in Chicago, weirdly. Which is so dumb. Um, yeah. yeah. He, but he says, and the more people who get upset that I film there, the more I'll make sure that's exactly where I film. So let the people of Chicago enjoy Ferris Bueller. I oh, don't know. I love it. Yeah. I love Chicago. I love Ferris Bueller. Boom.
1: Boom. <laughs> Yeah, so after Ferris Bueller, well actually during the same year as Ferris Bueller, is Pretty in Pink.
0: Oh yeah, that is
1: crazy to me. The third movie and probably my very favorite in that trilogy. Tell me about Pretty in Pink. So Pretty in Pink is about a girl from a working class family. She's a single dad and she really takes care of her dad. Mm -hmm. Um, And she goes to a high school that's pretty affluent and there are a lot of kids in the high school that are just, like, rich assholes. Like, mm-hmm. you think Lake Forest sort of place. Yeah, I like actually, a Mean Girls
0: North Shore kind of yeah. deal. Also set in Chicago, by the way. Yeah. yeah.
1: Um, I actually was watching uh, a little bit of it today before I came over here. And I never noticed this before, but there's, like, a street sweeper going through in the opening scenes. And it says, Elgin.
0: In oh, back. interesting. Yeah. And I was huh. like, oh, okay.
1: <laughs> yeah. But the idea is that you get the sense that she commutes to, to like,
0: this, like, uh, big high okay. school or something. Sure. I was just going to look up where it was filmed because he Ooh, films yeah. in a lot of Chicago suburb high schools. And I saw that this film, their initial release was on March 6, 1986, in the Soviet Union. What? So it was initially released, apparently, in the USSR? That's weird to me. That's very weird. Yeah, that's strange. Anyway. So
1: so one of the reasons that this is my very favorite is that I really, really love James Spader. Mm. Um, And he plays the, like, villain, the bad boy 80s villain. And I'm going to need you to look up a picture of him just so you see what I'm talking about. I think there's something about his voice, too. It's very, like, snooty and... He's like, no, I've liked you for four years and you've never paid attention to me. I don't know. It's Ew. just very, it sounds terrible, but I really like him. Okay. <laughs> but look at him.
0: He's got okay. this like feathered hair and yeah. he's always wearing
1: these like white linen suits. He looks and... a little
0: like a young Barry Manilow. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: I'm super into his vibe in
0: Pretty in Pink. Apparently he's Pretty a... in Pink was filmed in Los Angeles. Oh, that's also disappointing. Yeah.
1: But yeah, he's an unmitigated asshole, so there's no reason to like that character whatsoever, except
0: I just really like James Spader. Yeah, (laughs) Um, he's got very nice hair. But it kind
1: of goes back to the theme you were talking about, like, oh, would Andy, like, step out of his circle? Mm Because he was really popular. And this kid, Blaine... His name Mm -hmm. is Blaine. He's a popular kid, likes Molly Ringwald's character, even though that's totally stepping out of his circle. And there's definitely this tension sometimes where he doesn't want some of his friends to know he really likes her, but Mm -hmm. he does really like her, and he asks her out. And it's just a fantastic movie. I really enjoy the way it's shot. Annie Potts is in it. She's like this record owner um, at the shop that Molly Ringwald works Uh at. It's so good. Nice. And also... What's his name? John Cryer is in it. Oh, sure. And he plays Ducky, her best friend who's also in love with her. And mm. there's this great scene where she's, it's probably my favorite scene in the movie. She's getting ready for a date with Blaine, it's their mm-hmm. first date. And she's in the record store, Annie Potts's store. And then Ducky's character just comes in, like, guns blazing, dancing and lip syncing to Otis Redding's, Ooh. like, Try a Little Tenderness. Uh-huh. Oh, it's so good.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I conflate this with 16 Candles in my head, which is really unfortunate because... This is a movie I'd
1: kind of like to watch with you just to see what you think. Yeah. Because in its own right, I think it's just... I think it's just wonderful. So, John Hughes wrote this and mm. produced it but did not direct it, which okay. kind of makes sense to me like looking back because it doesn't have that like it's filmed like a little darker Oh, okay. And then it doesn't have that like John Hughes like slapstick like sound effects thing mm. that all the other movies mm-hmm. have, like the boing and like yeah. all this other stuff. It's just very, it's it's more of like a drama mm. almost. Okay. And like there are funny moments, but it's not, I guess the funny moments aren't like punctuated by any sound effects or any sort of outside yeah. things like I would expect from a John Hughes directed film. Yeah. If that
0: makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, I've seen this a long time ago, but I, yeah, not recently enough to not conflate it with 16 Candles. So, But there's definitely, there's the underdog element to it, you know, (laughs) that like,
1: I think that's a theme throughout all of his movies. But something interesting, I didn't realize I heard on a podcast on the way over here that was actually a soundtrack podcast. I was listening oh. to like the, the music of John Hughes Ooh. and they were talking about it, which was amazing. What
0: podcast was that? I'd
1: have to look up the name of it. I okay. just like looked up John oh, Hughes okay. on Apple Podcasts. Sure. was like, let's, this let's one. listen. Soundtracks. Great. I was also driving at the same time, which don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> was that a stoplight when I looked it That's up? That's fine.
0: <laughs>
1: but mm. I didn't realize this. I completely forgot what I was going to say. Is it about the alternate
0: ending? Yes. Okay.
1: Because <laughs> so, there's, a, there's a Wikipedia so, yeah. category
0: called Alternate Ending. Yeah,
1: <laughs> apparently the Molly Ringwald character, Andy, is supposed to end up with Ducky, the boy who's super into her the whole time, which the John is, Cryer character. Which is how that movie should end. Yeah, but like they did a <clears> test <throat> screening of it and everyone wanted mm-hmm. her to end up with the rich guy, so they changed the ending. <sighs> That's disappointing. It is. And I was also really interested when we were reading the Molly Ringwald uh, article that she mentioned that the Ducky's character are supposed to be gay because i don't get that
0: at oh all. interesting
1: like he's so obsessed with her yeah like so into her like his whole like life goal is to marry her yeah there's this really like heartwarming scene with her dad that he's he's like i uh, i want you to know that my only future goals are, are to make sure she's taken care of so mm. you can rest easy with that <laughs> and, he's and the dad's like well, you know, uh, he calls him Phil. So Ducky's probably like a nickname. It's like, you know, Phil, uh, just because you love somebody doesn't mean they're going to love you back. And he kind of talks about Andy's mom and how she left and stuff. He's like, it's, it's all in the heart. And Ducky's like, Oh, Oh sure. Yeah. Cardiovascular. Yeah. (laughs) I go to school. I got it. But it's like, he doesn't quite get it. Like, and so he's heartbroken when this guy shows up to take her on a date. Uh And um, you get, like, the ducky heartbroken scenes, which are the worst.
0: Didn't Lily Ringwald say that that character was based off of her her real-life best friend? Her real-life best friend. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Who was, who, that actor, or that person is really gay. Yeah. Yeah. that might be where she is. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. But,
1: like, oh my gosh. But it's it's not canon. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you could see that, though, because there's a chemistry between those characters that seems like it's something based on mm-hmm. real life, too. Just like yeah. you, you get the feeling that they've grown up together and they've always been in each other's lives. Yeah. And that, yeah. It's really interesting.
0: Yeah. Nice. Yeah, we should watch that sometime. We
1: absolutely should. That'd I kind of want to watch it, like, really soon. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, some of my favorite 80s songs
0: are in that movie,
1: too. Ooh. The Otis Roddy one, obviously not. But, like, that is one of my favorite scenes. <laughs> but there's one, um, If You Leave, mm-hmm. by Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark. Yes.
0: The, if you leave, don't Oh not yeah. leave now. Please don't take my Ooh. heart away.
1: Classic. <laughs> so good. So 80s. Um, the Smiths is on this soundtrack. Oof. Please, 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 let me oh, get right. what I want. Yeah. Lord knows it would be the first time.
0: I knew that that band was from the 80s, but for some reason I associated it with the early 2000s. Yeah. Because it became like a big resurgence. Yeah. And especially after like 500 Days of Summer. Yes. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's...
1: From Pretty and well, not from Pretty in Pink, but they use it on Pretty in Pink. Yeah, it's actually an amazing soundtrack. Um, it just gives me all the nice. feels. Almost every song in that movie. Yeah, I think it's my favorite of the John Hughes movies of the soundtracks.
0: Yeah, I feel like music is pretty embedded in his stuff, but maybe more so in Pretty in Pink. Because mm-hmm. I know Breakfast Club has "Don't Forget About Me." Yes. Ferris Bueller's Day Off. The actual like main song of that. Movie is Oh Yeah, which are you familiar with this song? No, but I love the Donkishin. Don oh, yeah, donk-a-shang. it is the oh, is this yes, okay, this song, oh, yeah. yes, <laughs> which is such a weird song to have as your main song for your yeah. movie. That movie is so <laughs> bizarre to me. Um, yeah, I think something else that kind of categorizes. Some of his movies is that they kind of resist easy conclusions. Yeah. I remember the first time I watched The Breakfast Club, I was in, like, seventh grade, and I was watching with my best friend. And afterwards, I was like, I mean, that was good, but, like, what
1: happened? What, happened? what happens? Yeah. Like, it's not over yet.
0: Mm-hmm. And, but the movie ends at a very specific moment before you see it's just one day it's just one day Mm -hmm. and ferris bueller is also kind of like that like the conclusion of ferris bueller i think happens like 20 minutes before the actual end of the movie the end of the movie is him like getting away with it and like his sister letting him get away with it and helping him but the for me the real end of the movie is him and cameron talking to each other about the car and Mm -hmm. about how cameron's gonna stick up to his dad and ferris is like finally kind of realizing the weight of his actions for the first time and I don't know it's just like a it's a very scattered kind of conclusion
1: yeah yeah
0: that's interesting but now that I'm thinking about it it was also the beginning of like the mainstream postmodernism, right era Mm -hmm. so like that makes a lot of sense that it just kind of went in opposite directions rather than coming together at the end yeah 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 very true yeah so I guess we've already kind of talked about like what makes these movies so classic and so revered but I think it'd be a good note to end on like why because we're also focusing on these five these four specific movies Mm -hmm. but they're all very kind of similar in tone and they use a lot of the same cast, obviously, like the Brat Pack. Yeah. I wrote um, down some of the Brat Pack. Yeah. what? Who all is in so, it? So Emilio
1: Estevez, Anthony Michael Hall, Judd Nelson, Rob Lowe, Demi mm. Moore. So I'm thinking this is like a St. Elmo's Fire overlap, sure. which yeah. I love St. Elmo's Fire too. Um, Molly Ringwald, Andrew McCarthy, who played Blaine mm-hmm. in Pretty in
0: Pink, John Cryer. Those were the ones I could think of. Charlie Sheen. Emilio Estevez's half brother is in. He's in
1: Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Yeah, he
0: makes out with Jennifer Grey at the police station. Yeah. So
1: what is the other thing in like John Hughes movies of like the good girl with like the bad boy from the wrong side of the tracks? Yeah. Kind of like John Bender too. And it's
0: a real fast scene in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. It's like a seven-minute scene, and that's it. Uh huh. But it is like a really. I think it's kind of an important moment for her in that movie because that's when she. He, he asks her, like, why does your brother getting away with all this stuff make you so upset? And she has to, like, question for herself. She's like, why should he get to do everything while the rest of us have to, like, go along with the bullshit of being a teenager? And Charlie Sheen's like, you could you could do it like you could be a bad girl and so she like like, like embodies that spirit yeah a and bit. at the end she like helps ferris bueller get off the hook and is like yeah. no it's fine like come <laughs> on inside get upstairs before mom and dad catch I you i my it with charlie sheen i'm good now <laughs> i made out with charlie sheen in a police station i'm a bad girl too <laughs>
1: I'm thinking of, like, the siblings, too, because in Sixteen Candles, it's also John and Joan Cusack are both in it oh, as minor wow. roles. John Cusack is the, like, sidekick for Anthony Michael Hall. Uh-huh. And Joan Cusack has, like, headgear on, and you just see her in, like, off scenes every oh, now sure. and then. <laughs> like, She's like, uh.
0: Yeah. <laughs> she, like, a necklace Yeah. On. But. Wow.
1: Yeah, he definitely liked to stay with the same actors and actresses. Yeah. Again and again.
0: Yeah. Which I also think kind of helped him solidify a, it was probably practical if he's making these movies in the same like two years, but also kind of helped associate a crowd, like yeah, his audience yeah. engagement.
1: I think Anthony Michael Hall was also um, in one of the vacation movies, the National Lampoon's vacation yeah. as one of the little kids.
0: Yeah. I think he was also in Weird Science. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. Uh-huh. I'm trying to think of more overlap
0: that I didn't think of.
1: Just some fun... Oh, Uncle Buck. John Candy is in that one, and in Planes, Trains, and Automobiles.
0: Catherine O'Hara is in Home Alone, and so is Kieran Culkin. Oh, yeah. So Alan Ruck and Kieran Culkin, two John Hughes alumni, are in Succession. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. I watched like three episodes of Succession, and I was like where is connor from what is connor who is he who is this person and then i was like oh shit he's the sad kid in ferris bueller yeah and it was such a perfect casting choice oh my gosh
1: yeah i think you shared that with me yeah and i was just like
0: holy oh shit my god. <laughs> yes
1: yeah succession's also fantastic it really is speaking of kieran Culkin, have you ever seen igby goes down no i haven't oh my god that's another one we have to Okay. super fucking dark but it's also ryan felipe and um
0: wait ryan felipe
1: yeah do you say ryan phillip i always say it wrong Oh. He's the one who was with Reese Witherspoon. He's in Cruel Intentions.
0: Oh, yes.
1: Yeah. Who's super fucking hot. Yeah.
0: Sebastian. <laughs> Ooh. Yes. Yes. I love Cruel Intentions, too. Me, too. too.
1: So he a, has a very Sebastian-like character in Igby Goes Down, okay. too. But Igby Goes Down is, like, inspired by uh, Catcher in the Rye, even though, it like, was never supposed to be a movie. Mm. And it's it's different in certain places, but it's okay. Yeah. Interesting. But yeah, it's real, real good.
0: I've never even heard of that.
1: It's a really like random one. I started started liking in high school. I feel like I picked it up at like a flea market or something. Oh, okay. One of my first jobs was at the Gordyville flea market.
0: Nice. Yep. That sounds like an awesome high school job. Yeah, it was.
1: It well we were in the uh, concession stand, so it was pretty gross. Oh, okay. And we did like a lot of sausage, egg, and cheese sandwiches, which I still have a hankering for sometimes. It was oh, like the yeah. greasiest, grossest, most amazing
0: thing ever. Yeah. Ugh. I mean, I used so to work good. at a chicken restaurant, and I still love a chicken sandwich. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yeah, it's hard to get over. It sure
1: is, but it brings back all the high school feels, man. Yeah. Um, you know, I had like my my Jake Ryan that I mm-hmm. wrote about in my high school journals, and after. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Pretty in pink. Yeah, it just all the feels, man. It just takes you back to some really good times.
0: Yeah, yeah. Something else that Molly Ringwald talked about in her op-ed is that a lot of people who are not represented in John Hughes films feel like a really deep kinship with them, especially in the Mm -hmm. queer community and that people have told her like it, you know, when you're questioning your own identity and you don't know where you fit in, it's really refreshing to see other characters on screen who are teenagers who are played by teenagers. Yeah. Important to note, yeah, um, doing the same thing, like not sure where they fit in, not sure who they are, questioning their future talking about what are we going to do after this? What is our life? It's a universal adolescent experience, I think. Yeah. It really taps into those
1: feelings in a very genuine way.
0: Yeah, in a really sympathetic way, too. Mm -hmm. Like, it's not played for laughs, really. No,
1: he's treating those subjects very seriously. And Mm -hmm. it it really is like the drama of life. Yeah. Because we're still playing out those same feelings and questions Mm -hmm. in different ways. Like, the car that you're driving when you're 16 is now, like... Oh, the real estate that like I'm looking at, you know, it's it's very, it's, it's human, but that's just our first experiences with those human emotions. Mm
0: -hmm. Getting Uh.
1: laid all the time. Everybody's thinking about
0: that. That's all people are concerned (laughs) with. Mm Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for talking about John Hughes with me. Oh, anytime. This was fantastic. Mm-hmm. I'm really glad I got to rewatch Ferris Bueller today.
1: Yeah, I just started rewatching Pretty in Pink, but I, I kind of still watch it a lot. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I haven't dipped back into any of these recently, but now I'm glad I did. Yeah. And thank you for listening. And if you'd like to reach out to us, we have an Instagram handle at loiteringpod and a Twitter handle at Pod. Or you can send us an email at loiteringpodcasts at gmail.com. And if you like this, you can give us a rating or review on iTunes. And we'd really appreciate it. We sure would. Uh, And until next time, bye. Okay, bye.